Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. We are so thankful uh, to have you join us in our time together today. If you have your Bibles there at home, or perhaps the words will be on the screen in just a moment, I want to ask you to turn with me in the Old Testament to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, to a few verses of Scripture that will be quite familiar to you. And I think it's these verses of Scripture, these familiar verses, that we need to turn to in really a time in our life and in our nation that is unfamiliar to us. Uh, A day like today is certainly a unique day, as literally we gather here right now in the worship center at Crosslink. There's uh, probably a dozen or so people, maybe less, I'm not sure, uh, just a little over than that, maybe in the entire building. And so this is a unique situation for us. In fact, uh, it reminds me a little bit of when I first began preaching. Many years ago, uh, I was getting ready to preach my very first sermon, and I was absolutely uh, terrified. I was nervous at the thought of standing in front of people and preaching. And so I did what any good country boy will do uh, when the Lord calls him to preach. I, I began to practice in the back of a field. And so my responsibility growing up in our little, our country home and in our, in, our, in our farm was to take care of the sheep. And so that means for about two weeks, I would go out to the field, I would feed the sheep, and while they were eating, I would preach to them. I mean, I would give them everything I had and I would preach. And would you believe the one cantankerous ram, about every time I got fired up, he always gave me a good bah, bah, just like that. In fact, he gave me so many baths one time, I was convinced he was converted and was ready to be baptized, but he didn't like that very much. So uh, anyway, hey, listen, I know you can't literally say out loud amen here in the building, but you can still say amen online, or you can give a, a raised hand, something like that, but engage with us. Let us know that you're right here with us in our time together this morning. We, as you know, are living in a day of great challenge and uncertainty. When we look at the chaos of our day, we are easily Uh, confused and astounded at what is going on. In the past week, for example, it's been so crazy. We are seeing things in our lifetime, many of us, that we've never seen before, not to this level. Sports leagues have completely shut down. Universities and schools have closed, and we're not sure yet when they're going to be reopened. Large events have been canceled. Uh, Groups of people, massive groups, have literally been banned. And as we've seen throughout the news, there has been mass panic all over the place. Um, We are getting ready to see some things that we've never seen before. I have never seen a drive-through makeshift medical clinic for testing, but we're getting ready to see that. I have never, ever been to a Costco that didn't offer free samples. I mean, it is, it is a new day in our life. I have never in my life been to a Walmart that didn't have toilet paper. I mean, come on. We are living in a very uh, unique time. Of course, I, I say that somewhat lightheartedly, but in all seriousness, these have been strange times. And yet at the same time, as believers, we know we should not be surprised. As believers, we should not let this unsettle us 
because Jesus told us that we would face trials and circumstances in this world. We saw last week in our time together, we live in a broken and fallen world. We see death and disease and destruction in this sin-cursed world. But there's great encouragement for us today. Jesus told us in John 16, verse 33, in the world, this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. I would encourage you this week, go read John 16, verse 32, and and let that sink in for a moment about where we still find ourselves today. Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. No doubt we face trials and circumstances in this fallen world. And as we look throughout our communities, our neighborhood, right here in Rockingham County and beyond, as we look throughout our country and the countries of the world, people are looking and wondering, is there any hope? And if so, where are we to find this hope? There are some who are looking at the president, President Trump, and they are looking to him and his actions or or his decisions, and they're hoping to find hope there. But the fact of the matter is, we can't find our hope in the president. There are some that are looking at the task force that's been assigned to assess the the COVID virus and to look into the details and to figure a solution and what steps we need to take. And people are looking and putting their hope there. But the fact of the matter is, is that our hope has to be anchored in something much more secure than a temporary task force. There are some who are putting their hope in a, in a political party or maybe the funding that can be provided. Well, when can we get these tests and how soon can we get the results? And, and we're looking at these things saying, can I put my hope there? But the fact of the matter is this morning is that while all these things may be good and all these things may be well-intentioned and while all these things can certainly be beneficial, the fact is, is that we understand as Christians that our only hope is God. Our only hope is the God of the heavens and the earth who created it all, who's over all things. And only if we as a people are able to turn to him, only as we turn to him will we have the hope that we need. Fortunately for us, though, here today in 2020, we are certainly not the first to face trials and adversity. In fact, several hundred years before the birth of Christ, God warned his people about adversities and difficulties they would face. Not only did he warn them about these adversities and difficulties, he instructed them on what they were to do when those times came. He told them where to go and who to even turn to. And he tells us that in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. As we read these verses of Scripture this morning, I want to speak to you on the subject, our greatest need. Our greatest need. There are a lot of things in life and certainly in our culture today, that we think we need. But God identifies loud and clear what our greatest need really is in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what God spoke hundreds of years before the very birth of Christ. God said this, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Listen to what God says. Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin 
then I will heal their land. Our greatest need. You know, many of us today tuning in online have heard these verses of Scripture before. This isn't the first time you've heard them. It might be the first time you've heard them in a long time. In fact, even throughout this week, as, as I was preparing the message that I was planning to preach today, uh, even on Wednesday afternoon as I was wrapping things up and bringing things together at the end to preach the message that I had intended to preach, I began to wrestle with these verses of Scripture. In fact, I began to think through, when was the last time I heard a message or heard a challenge from these verses of Scripture? Truth is, ironically enough, the last time I heard these scriptures in a public setting was at a political rally during the last campaign, and that rally took place at the Rockingham County Fairgrounds right across the street from here. And it was there in that rally, as I kind of stood there in curiosity, that a pastor came and shared these verses of scripture and called the entire audience to, to prayer. Today, these are the verses of scripture, interestingly enough, that God has laid on my heart. Even on Friday, as I watched the news conference, as President Trump was speaking about the coronavirus and all the different challenges and, and the different situations and potential actions and things that are being taken, I was encouraged when I heard him call the nation today to a day of prayer. Because the fact of the matter is, what we need today, our greatest need, frankly, is that we need God. When God penned these words or put these words out in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the fact is, is that the Israelites were experiencing a great moment of celebration. Second Chronicles chapter 7, they weren't in a circumstance. They weren't facing a pandemic. They weren't facing challenges in this moment. In fact, in Second Chronicles 7, they had just completed the building of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant had been established, and there the Bible says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The Israelites joined together in celebration and feast, and they feasted like none other as they celebrated the praises of God. Second Chronicles chapter 7, God speaks to King Solomon. He says, now send the people away to their homes. And as they went to their homes, the Bible says they went rejoicing. It was a great moment of celebration. But God in his omniscience knew the nature and the tendency of man. Isaiah 53 says it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. God knew our nature, especially in times of blessing, to wander and to stray and to turn back to our own ways. And in that context, God says in verse 13, so Solomon, if I shut up the heaven so there's no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, and if I send pestilence among my people, here is what I'm calling you to do. Please understand this morning, I am not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that God delights in the brokenness that we face in this world. I'm not saying this morning that God delights in the circumstances and the adversities that we face. However, it's often through these circumstances, it's through these trials, it's through these times of crisis that we begin to realize our great need for God. Personally, I don't like droughts or diseases, but there is something about them that causes me and causes us as a whole to realize our own humanity and our need for God. It doesn't matter how wealthy we are, doesn't matter how scientific we are, doesn't matter how smart we are, doesn't matter how influential we are. When we are in seasons of drought and disease, it causes us to realize how small we really are. In other words, another way of saying that is our low state causes us to look up and realize the greatness of God. Who we need is God. 
And what we need from him, frankly, is an attentiveness. We need an attentiveness and a devotion to him. The preachers of old used to use the word revival. The word revival literally means a renewed attention to something, a restoration of life, vigor, and strength. I believe wholeheartedly what God is showing us in his word and what he's revealing in our life today is that we need an attentiveness. We need an awakening to him. And the only way we're gonna have a restoration to life, vigor, and strength is to turn to God, to have a renewed focus on him. Well, the good news for us this morning is that God hasn't left us without instruction or without help. He tells us everything we need to know about this awakening, this revival in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Now, I want you to pay attention to really just three key observations in the text this morning that I hope will encourage you, but that will also challenge you this morning. Number one, I want us to see the people of revival. The people of revival. This is kind of answering the question, where does revival begin? Does revival begin in the school system? No. Are we looking for revival and a move of God to begin in our government? No. Revival doesn't begin in any man-made organization or institution. If God is to send revival to our nation, if we're going to have a fresh move of him, guess where it begins? It begins with us who are God's people. God says this statement in verse 14, my people who are called by my name. In other words, he's talking about the people who are in relationship with him, the people who belong to him, the people who would say, yes, God is my God, and yes, we are his people, we belong to him. We hear that word my, my people, that word my suggests possession. In the context of people, it suggests a relationship. Just this past week, as we were gathered here to worship, there was a, a lady who had come to our worship services to gather here with us. And the last time she was here, she was here alone. But this time she came and she brought her husband and she brought her children. And even in that one little encounter, she used the word my several times. She introduced me to the husband and she said, this is my husband. She was suggesting a relationship, a, a relationship that exists between the two of them. And then she said, and this is my daughter. Her little girl must have been probably four or five years old and and so I said, hello, and I, I got down on my knees, and I said, what's your name? And she told me, and I said, who is this? She was holding a, a little baby doll that I could tell, even by the, the lack of kind of markings and things, that this was fairly new. And she said, this is my new doll. And she began to tell me about her recent birthday celebration that she had and the gift that she received. But they were using the word my to describe relationship and or possession. When God says my people, he is saying the people whom I have brought into relationship with me, the people who literally are called by my name. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. It reminds us that we are the people of God. It says it this way, you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I ask you, as you're sitting there at home, are you a people of God? Do you belong to him? 
Have you believed in Jesus and accepted Christ to be your Lord and Savior? If so, you are his people called by his name. The fact of the matter is this morning, there are many people who proclaim to be a people of God. They proclaim to be a Christian, but the evidence of that will be seen not in what we profess, but largely in what we practice. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In other words, one of the evidences that we are a people who belong to God is that it will be seen in our actions of obedience to the Lord. So as you consider, am I a child of God? Do I belong to him? I would cause you to consider, are you walking in obedience and in relationship with him? When you and I came to Christ, we became associated with his name. We became a Christian. So what we say and do ultimately represents Christ to the world around us. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, therefore I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What have we been called? We've been called children of God, people of God, followers of Christ. If we're going to experience a great move of God in our lives, in this church, if we're going to experience a great move of God in our country, please understand, Christian, it begins with us. Evangelist Gypsy Smith said it this way. He was once asked how a revival begins, and here's what he said, and I quote, Christian, Here's how revival comes. Go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of your floor, draw a chalk mark all around yourself and ask God to start the revival inside that chalk mark. When he has answered your prayer, the revival will be on. In other words, he understood that if revival was to happen, if a move of God was to occur, we must not wait for the nation to turn to God. We must instead ourselves turn to God first. My question as you're listening from home or from all over the place today is this. Are you willing for that revival to begin with you? The people of revival. The second thing we see in the text from 2 Chronicles 7 verses 13 and 14 is what I'm calling the potential for revival. The potential for revival. I have never known a true believer who didn't want to see God move in a mighty way. Every single one of us, we want to see God move in an incredible way. Certainly in the context of our culture today, we desire to see God move, to give wisdom and to give clarity and to give answers, to give a healing and, and peace in the midst of such a time of, uh, of chaos. We want to see God show up. We want to see God work miracles. To be clear, miracles do still happen today. To be clear, revival does still occur. But maybe you're sitting there wondering, well, if miracles do happen, why do we not usually see them? If God can move in such an incredible way that a revival can occur, why aren't we seeing that on such a regular basis? And I would suggest to you this morning that the reason we're not often seeing miracles and the reason that we're not often seeing God move in such a way of revival is not because God is no longer able, but because we are no longer willing See, God says here, clearly the people that revival begins with are his people, but I'm calling it the potential for revival because of the context of these verses. Verse 13, notice how many times we see the word, if I shut up the heavens, if I command the locusts, if I send pestilence. In verse 14, the context of the King James is, so if my people who are called by my name 
will do this. I'm calling it the potential for revival because the problem is not with God and his ability. The problem is usually with us. God says some incredible, powerful promises in just a moment, but he hinges those promises upon some conditions that we must meet. He uses the word if. Now, I can't speak for you, and I can't speak for your home and your children, but I know that in our house throughout the years, we've used the word if in a lot of different ways. For example, we know what the word if means. So we might say to our children, if you clean up your room and do all your chores, then you can enjoy this surprise. Maybe you're looking across the living room right now. You can relate to that. You've used that before. If these things happen, this can occur. Or maybe you've looked at a child and you've said, well, if you eat all your food, then you can have dessert. Our motto for years in our house was no meat, no treat. All right. So that's how we became meat eaters in our house, uh, like a good uh, Southern family might be. Even as our kids get older, we might say, if you keep your grades up, if you're home by curfew, then, then these things might be in store. The point is, we use the word if to describe something that we are desiring and or requiring of another. Well, God says, if my people do these things, I will work and move. Well, what are they? I'm going to list them as four words, and I'm going to give them as requirements for us to help us understand what God is calling us to do. If you're a Christian listening in, in your living room right here in Rockingham County, this is for you. If you're a Christian in some other state, this is for you. If you're a Christian in another country right now, God's word is for all of us. What is God saying we must do? Four things. Number one, we must humble ourselves. What does he say in verse 14? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. We all understand this morning the opposite of humility is pride. And pride can be devastating. It can ruin a man, it can ruin a marriage, it can ruin a church, it can even ruin a nation. The Bible has much to say about it. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 through 19 says it this way, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. God is calling us to be a humble people. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and humility goes before honor. Fact of the matter is we must be humble. And I realize for many of us today as Americans, that's hard for us to hear. Frankly, we, we want to look to the president. We want to look to the task force. We want to look to a political party because in many ways, we've kind of developed this mentality that, hey, we've got this. We've got the money to answer it. We've got the best medical professionals in the world. And so therefore, you know, we can figure out a solution. We're going to be okay. But the fact of the matter is, if we're to see God move, we have to begin first by humbling ourselves, by not relying on ourselves and recognizing that our absolute dependence and the answer to our problem and the healing that we need, all of it, it comes from God. The word humble literally means to be in submission, to live in a state of surrender. It gives the idea of imagery of being brought low. In other words, we humble ourselves when we willingly acknowledge that God is God and we are not. When we acknowledge that and we accept that he is God and we are not, we must be humble. 
without humility and instead giving into pride, it will lead us to all sorts of chaos and confusion. It will lead to absolute devastation. Go ask Eve when she gave in to the sin of pride and thought she knew better than God. We could go back and ask David when he thought he could do whatever he wanted to. He could lust, he could uh, commit adultery, he could literally even murder, and he had the pride to think he could cover it up and get away with it. It didn't work out well for him. The children of Israel through the Old Testament over and over again, as God blessed them, they became successful and they became uh, abundant in so many different things, even in number. And the Bible says that they began to depend upon themselves and their own strength and their own ability. And it led them time and time and time again to wasted time and ultimately to wasted lives. It was all because of the sin of pride. Sadly, this is often true even in the church today. When we think we can do everything on our own, we might depend upon our own finances or our own facilities, our lights and our technologies. We can do all these different things and manufacture certain situations and act as if we don't need God. But if we don't depend upon God first and foremost in all things, it's a sign of pride. Historian once reported that the theologian Thomas Aquinas once visited Pope Innocent II at his palace in Rome. And upon visiting there, he was overmazed by the grandeur and by the wealth that was exhibited. The Pope at that moment was counting a rather large mound of gold coins, and he turned to Thomas Aquinas, the theologian, and he proudly responded and said, Thomas, you see, my son, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. Of course, he's referring to the time that that Peter and John were walking into the temple and they, and they looked and they saw the man begging for alms and they said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I say to you, get up and walk. And instantly God moved and instantly the man was healed. The Pope looked at Thomas Aquinas and said, see, the church, look how wealthy we are. Look how abundant we are. Look at what we can do. The church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. And in wisdom, Thomas Aquinas looked back and said, true, Pope Innocent, But neither can the church now say, rise up and walk. In other words, what he was saying was, yes, as a church, they were wealthy. Yes, they were proud. Yes, they were in a place of abundance. But they were also in a place of powerlessness. Church, if we're going to see God move, we've got to begin first by humbling ourselves. Secondly, we must hope in God. Notice what the scripture says. If my people, uh, the scripture says, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. We pray. The word pray literally means to ask. Well, why does someone ask? We ask because we recognize a need or a desire and we have a hope of receiving. We as parents understand that very, very, very clearly, don't we? Our children ask something when they have a hope of receiving. Our child may come to us and say, mom or dad, can I have a piece of candy? And in their asking, they are expressing a hope that you will give them a piece of candy. Uh, My teenagers may ask, Dad, can I I hang out with my friends? And of course, they're asking in the hope of receiving. In fact, so much is our asking connected to our hope that sometimes our children will ask one parent over another because they're anticipating that they have a better hope of a favorable response with one parent over the other. In other words, we ask when we have a hope of receiving. What does God say? God says, my people must pray. 
they must ask. That we have not because we ask not. It is through prayer that we express our dependence upon God and ultimately our hope in him. We are hoping and anticipating that God will answer and he will respond. Can I just say to you this morning, I am so thankful that our president this past Friday announced that today is a day of prayer. Because in doing so, what he was in essence saying is, we need God's help. I can't speak for you, and I don't know your opinion. I certainly don't know all the government details behind the scene, but if there's one thing that's been clear by watching all the different press conferences and all the different reports and hearing the professionals and the scholars of the day, if there's one thing that's clear, it's this. They're not 100% sure what they're dealing with. It might have a name, and we might identify symptoms, and we might see numbers and all these different things, but the fact is we don't have a clear answer yet. There's not an easy solution yet. So where are we to turn? Well, the point of God saying, I want you to pray, is to recognize that our answer and our hope, ultimately, it comes from him. And so the Bible says, where do we get that hope? We get it by coming to him in prayer. That's why the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. (laughs) I love this scripture. Notice, as much as I love the music, Pastor Scott, he didn't say sing without ceasing. That'd be impossible. You'd lose your voice, all right? God didn't say fellowship without ceasing. Oh, this one's hard. God didn't even say preach without ceasing. Man, I would love to preach an eternal sermon that never ends. I know you would love it. It would bless you, right? No, he said pray without ceasing. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, Jesus told them two parables in Luke chapter 11. And here's the summary of those two parables. And that is this, don't give up. Keep on praying, keep looking to God, keep asking, keep seeking him. Why? Because our hope comes from him. And it's not until we get serious about this that we will find the grace and the hope and the peace that we need. Philippians chapter four says it this way, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You wanna have peace with God? Want the hope that comes from him? Want the joy that comes from him? Be a person of prayer. Third thing we must do is this. We must hunger for God. What does the scripture say? God says, my people should pray. They should humble themselves and they shall seek my face. We must hunger for God. Let me ask you a question as you're sitting there in your living room for just a moment. What are you hungry for? That's a dangerous question to ask you probably as you're sitting at home because you might already smell something cooking in the kitchen or your mind might start to drift to the bag of chips you can go grab in just a few minutes because you can just walk across the room and grab them. What are you hungry for? When I ask that question, I'm not asking you about what you want for brunch or for lunch. I'm really asking you in your life, what is it that you're longing for? What do your life actions reveal about the things in life that are important to you. Every single one of us long for something. But as believers, can it truly be said that we hunger and we long for God above anything and everything else? Unfortunately, for many for many of us, we have settled for secondary things for far too long. For many of us, we've been content to live life worshiping little g gods rather than worshiping the true God. 
Sadly, for many of us, we have been content to settle for our personal loves instead of truly living for the Lord. There's a lot of ways in our culture we can see this. But one of the ways we can see that, even this week, frankly, has been in the way that we have viewed and valued sports. Don't get me wrong, I love sports. I grew up playing sports. I grew up watching sports. I have coached sports. I enjoy cheering them on. They can teach a lot of great life lessons. And as a result of that, I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy every aspect of sports. However, this pandemic, for example, has caused every sports league that I know of to come to a screeching halt. Everything's canceled. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like that before amongst all the leagues, all the different things. We should have been watching uh, the, the, the conference tournaments this weekend. I mean, come on, what are you doing? And yet at the same time, by the cancellation of those sports, there are many who literally are like, well, what do we do now? What do we talk about now? They're discouraged. I need something to help me pass the time. I need something to entertain me. I need something to put my focus on. I need something to put my passion in. And literally by their response, they're revealing that it too, amongst maybe other things, have become a God in and of themselves. How tragic they say it is that sports has been canceled. But no, what is tragic is that for so many of us, even as Christians, is that we have settled for a life consumed by the temporary and willfully rejected that which is eternal. We have settled for a temporary pleasure and rejected ultimately eternal joy. What does God say? God says, here's what I want you to do, Christian. Here's what I want you to do, church. I want you to humble yourselves and I want you to pray and I want you to seek my face. That word seek in the Hebrew literally means to deeply desire, such a desire that it causes you action. It moves you forward into a pursuit, if you will. One of the major reasons why churches in America and Christians in general often never see a movement of God is frankly because we are seeking the wrong things. God spoke through Jeremiah these words, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Yes, we must be humble. Yes, we must be humble. Yes, we must hunger for God, but forth, we must be holy. Notice what the scripture says. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and here it is, and here's the hard one, and turn from their wicked ways. He's calling us to a place of holiness. Yes, humility. Yes, prayer, seeking his face. All of that is important, but it is also pointless if we are not turning away from our sin and turning back to God Continually turn to our sin is literally like bringing the chains in our life to keep us in bondage so that we can't move forward and we can't be the vessel that God's called us to be. God spoke through Isaiah these words in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him for he will freely pardon David said in Psalm 66, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Please understand this morning, one of the main things that's hindering the church and hindering many of us personally from revival in our life, a fresh move of God in our life, is the simple fact that we are not willing to confess and turn from our sins. For many of us, we are content to live a life where we love Jesus on Sunday 
and let Satan have an open invitation the rest of the week. Friend, God has promised to respond to our prayers, but it's not just the fact that God responds to prayers. It's not just the fact that God listens to the prayers of men. Listen to what the Bible says in James 5.16. He says, the prayer of a righteous man can't accomplish much. The question is, are we walking in righteousness? Are we walking in holiness? When we come to worship God and we come recognize his presence, do we humble ourselves and repent or do we just keep going back to our same old thing? Keep living in the sin. Maybe we come together to worship the Lord on Sunday and frankly, we come with the same anger and jealousy and lust and greed and everything else that we dabble in like it's no big deal. But please understand, we can pray and pray and pray for revival until we're blue in the face, but it's not until we turn from our sin that God will respond. Charles Finney said it this way, and i got to move quickly, that nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Here's what revival is. It is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. As in the case of a converted sinner, the first step is a deep repentance, a breaking down of heart, a getting down into the dust before God with deep humility and a forsaking of sin. Christian, I ask you, is there sin in your life that you need to repent of and turn from? For your sake, for your family's sake, for the sake of our nation, for the sake of the church, we must turn from our sin ultimately for the glory of God. Final thing I want you to see from this text, and I'm going to wrap it up quickly, is this. We see the promise of revival. The promise of the revival. The people, that's you and I. That's God's people. The potential, God says, if you do these things. But then he brings a simple and yet powerful promise. It's threefold in verse 14. If we humble ourselves and pray, seek his face, and turn from our wicked ways, God says, I will hear from heaven. God's ears will not be deaf to our cry. He is not ignorant of our needs. He is not resistant to our requests. His ears are open and he will hear us. But notice what he says, I will hear from heaven. (laughs) This is such good news. Because in this moment, God is not just saying, I'm up here in heaven and you people are here on earth and so I'm gonna hear you from my place. No, When the Bible describes the fact that God is from heaven, it's describing his position of power and authority. What the Bible is saying is the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who has all power and all authority, the God with whom nothing is impossible, the God who can work, who can move, who can heal, who can restore, who can save, who can set free, the God who can change, the God of heaven says, I will hear your prayers. First Peter reminds us literally we're to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. And what the scripture is telling us there is God who has all power and authority, he wants to hear from us because he cares from us. The promise of revival is I will hear from heaven. But secondly, he says, I will forgive your sin. I will forgive your sin. Friend, man's greatest need is God and his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. I will forgive their sin is what the Bible says. We live in a broken, fallen world marred by our sin. Our greatest need is to be cleansed and forgiven of our sin. Even we who are believers stumble, struggle, and fall along the way. Like the Israelites at times, we turn to our own directions and our own devices. And I remind you as even to believers that God would speak these words in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, God came to forgive and cleanse and set you you free through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The third thing we see of this promise is God says, I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And are you ready for the final part? I will heal their land. I'll heal their land. Is our land in need? Are there any problems? Are there moral problems? Have we as a nation in many ways turned from God? Is there a need? The answer is yes. But I want you to be reminded this morning that Our land needs a healing that will never come from a vaccine. We need a healing that will never come from a pharmacy or a doctor, a a political party, even a president or anything apart from God. Our great need comes only through Jesus. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. It is not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. (laughs) His point was and is that the self-righteous, they'll not be healed. But those who humble themselves, those who admit and recognize their need, those who turn to Jesus as the healer, those are the ones he'll heal. My question for us to consider today is, do you want to be healed? As a nation, are you willing to pray? Are you willing to to seek God? Are you willing to turn from your wicked ways? Are we willing to see God bring healing to not only our hearts, but to our homes and ultimately to our land? That's impossible apart from God. But with Him, all things are possible. This morning, as we close this message, I want to ask you two questions. The first question is very simple, and that is, maybe you're here this morning, tuning in online, and you're sitting here thinking, man, I need that kind of healing. I I need forgiveness of my sins. I I need God. I've been so afraid, and I've been discouraged, and I've been struggling, and I need God today. If that's you this morning, right where you're seated, seated, right, seated right now, would you just pray and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I need your grace. Please forgive me. Please save me. I know my greatest need is Jesus today. Secondly, maybe you're tuning in and you are a believer. You know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe when you heard those requirements, we must be humble. We must hope in God. We must hunger for God above other things, everything. We must be holy. Maybe one of those things really stood out to you because you know there's an area that God's convicting you. That's you this morning, right where you are seated in your living room or wherever you're at. Would you pray and surrender to God and say, God, forgive me. 
Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my lack of faithfulness in this area. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.